I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. mind. Hello, this is To the Republic with Jake and Jeff, a show dedicated to exploring civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. On a previous episode, Jake and I took a look at the voting system in the United States. We discussed how the the first-past-the-post or winner-takes-all voting system results in a two-party system. Uh, Real quick, if you're interested in that episode or other episodes we've done on democratic norms, public opinion, immigration, and the branches of government in the United States, you can find our show archived on kxrwvancouver.org or on the feed of our podcast titled Say What You Mean. With that said, we wanted to take a look at the two parties that are dominant in our election system. So this month, we're going to analyze the Republican Party, its history, the competition within the party, and the evolution of ideas that have shaped policy goals throughout its existence. So I think we should start with the history and just kind of defining what the Republican Party is, yeah, for where sure. it's come from. So we kind of have a baseline of when we're talking about more ideological things later in the episode, mm-hmm. or we talk about specific events and or you know schisms within the party. People understand where the party kind of came from, and mm-hmm. I think that's important to to this episode that we we kind of catalog the the transformation in, in timeline of, of the, the Republican Party. The term Republican was adopted in 1792 by supporters of Thomas Jefferson, who was a Democrat but created the Democratic Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, the, um, the party evolved in the 1930s under, um, under President Jackson as just being the Democratic Party, which was the modern Republican Party's, which is the modern Republican Party's chief rival. Mm-hmm. So they kind of derive a little bit from the same place, right? but they've, they quickly diverge into um, differences on the role of government, mm-hmm. um, states versus federal power, um, in other economic, uh, foreign policy, and social and social beliefs. Right. Um, the Republican Party traces its roots, um, the current iteration of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. so what became known as the Republicans, um, traces its roots back to the 1850s, which was a conglomerate of three of members of three different parties, right. uh, disaffected um, Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, Whigs, yep. and Free Soil Parties. Yes. Uh, they joined forces to oppose the extension of slavery, um, slavery was such a hot button issue and really became the lightning rod for the for the creation of the Republican Party mm-hmm. in the 1850s prior to the lead up, the lead up to the Civil War because um, the Democratic Party controlled much of um, of the House and the Senate controlled the presidency for a long period of time throughout the early 19th century and what they were hoping to do with the expansion of slavery into territories mm-hmm. would give them more representatives into the Congress, which would heighten their power. So Republicans were very much had a lot of as being ideologically opposed to slavery also had a very political motive to limit the amount of um, new territory that would, that would be slave territory as in the United States expanded West. Right. So there was, that was a major political hot button issue as the Republicans saw Democrats as trying to expand their power through the creation of new slave territory um, that became 
the rallying cry for the Republicans, which eventually led to the very first Republican being um, nominated. His name was John C. Fremont in mm-hmm. 1856. He lost um, the presidential bid, but in 1860, famously, Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican Party uh, president, right. was elected to the office. Right. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. I was going to mention real quick that in the research that I did, I found that there was kind of one one specific point that kind of really turned turned the tide for for this this movement if mm-hmm. you will um it was the introduction of the kansas nebraska bill yes. of 1854 mm-hmm. yeah so that was an act an act that dissolved the term of the missouri compromise and allowed slave or free status to be decided in territories by popular sovereignty sovereignty yes which is what you touched on mm-hmm. but that was kind of the the one bill one yeah. specific point that kind of turned the tide definitely and what was what became known as bleeding kansas so really you had a civil war break out in the kansas territory mm-hmm. you know half a decade before of you know the secession of southern states right. after the election of 1860 where in really what um became one of the major um you know political controversies mm-hmm. in this time and really um started to marginalized like republicans felt marginalized and felt like the democrats weren't playing by the rules mm-hmm. was that when so kansas when they were voting on whether to be a slave enter the union as either a slave state or free state right. they held separate um elections on that and mm-hmm. then so the uh, the free soilers and the uh slave state voters were both rushing their vote their vote tallies right to james buchanan who was the democratic president mm-hmm. at the time and de- um the James Buchanan, this is oversimplified, but he chose to only um, look at the votes submitted by the um, by the caucus of of, of pro slavery right, Democrats in right. the Kansas in the Kansas party in the in the in the Kansas election, which really really angered Republicans mm-hmm. and and hurt the standing of the Democratic Party with Republicans, mm-hmm. which created a, a whole bunch of of institutional tug of war right. between the Republicans and Democrats in the Congress. Seems like there was an issue of representation. Yes, and I, I later when we get in further into the episode, we will discuss a little bit about representation within the Republican Party, but. It, you know, at that time, there was they felt disenfranchised mm-hmm. and a lack of representation. Yes. So as I mentioned in the intro, you know, we're going to look at this evolution of ideas, um, but that goes hand in hand with the history. I think. I would agree. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look at kind of some early ideas that evolve into kind of what you know kind of become traditional ideas that we know today. Mm-hmm. So two main currents to the evolution and cycles of the Republican Party are changes and evolution in society. 
But mainly what we found was that there's this fundamental foundation in economics. Uh, so we're going to take a look at how policies and ideas have been influenced by that foundation in economics through time. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do this, we have to look at classical philosophy. Yes. And the two the two philosophers that we'll specifically look at that whose writings and beliefs have underpinned these economic beliefs that you've we've we've introduced here yeah. we're going to we're going to introduce um i think we need to explore these at least uh, at the surface level mm-hmm. because it, it shows that there is a theoretical there's a conceptual basis for republican party platform right and it's important if we're going to talk about the republican party to be able to um identify those there's a very historical rooted reason philosophy of why they they have these policies and ideas um, based on these early early writings and we're going to talk a little bit about these authors and uh, philosophers um, but who do you want to start with i think it'd be best to start with thomas hobbes yeah i think so too he was earlier than the other one we were talking about, oh, which okay, is adam okay. smith yeah. so just to keep it linear i think right. we should start by talking <laughs> with thomas hobbes for sure so thomas hobbes was an english philosopher scientist and historian uh he's best known for his political philosophy especially as articulated in his masterpiece the leviathan yes so hobbes has a view of human nature mm-hmm. and that is humans are not intrinsically warlike or they're not intrinsically peaceful, just humans because of the condition of anarchy. So people completely, so a a human in an existence completely stripped of all government, all rules, regulations, just at the individual level. Without any governing body. Correct. Just as an individual. Mm -hmm. Okay. Humans are self-interested because they ha- can only rely on themselves for their own survival. That humans, the, the number one goal of, of humans mm-hmm. is to survive and to reproduce. Okay, and that was a, a philosophy of his. A philosophy okay. of his, yes. Okay. So under conditions of anarchy, humans are going to be have to result to self-help strategies okay. for survival. You have Self-help strategies can, you know, usually results in warlike, warlike behavior oh, okay. because... You have to you have to defend resources. You have to defend yourself from the encroachment of others because you don't know their intentions. Right, intentions can always be misleading. They can they're unknown. Right, right. So, being that there is no government to protect the individual, mm-hmm. you have to rely on yourself mm-hmm. to be able to protect your your own your own your family yourself. Right. In a condition of what is anarchy, which is no government. So Hobbes is arguing that human nature is self-preservation correct okay yes gotcha and it's important in understanding that philosophy because it reveals the basis for which people like the republican party form their beliefs about the role of government and how those beliefs influence policy right yeah definitely absolutely so this the suggestion from hobbes in Mm -hmm. his writings for how to combat what he said was for most people a solitary poor nasty brutish and short life Mm -hmm. because of anarchy right um was to create what he called uh leviathan Mm -hmm. it's to change the state in which humans are living in from one of no regulation and no government to one of government Mm -hmm. and he would hobbs if he were sitting here talking with us he would he would suggest that the more government the more control over the individual Mm -hmm. is um creates for a more 
safe and protective society. Right. You had told me earlier that he was a he was a supporter of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. So he he very he lived at the time of the English Civil War. Right. And he was in support of the monarchy because mm-hmm. he believed that the monarchy, having centralized power into one individual, which mm-hmm. is absolute, you know, this was an absolute monarchy. So all power resided in the king. Mm-hmm. He believed that that was basically the pinnacle of Leviathan. Right. The and solution he, to that he, yes, self-preservation. And he, and he believed that if the, if the king was toppled, mm-hmm. that humans would devolve into an anarchic state again, okay. creating for even more violence than what was currently happening, right, what was currently right. going on in his time. Um, so in order to remove basic fear between individual or groups, Hobbes suggested that people should contract with the protector of their as their sovereign. Mm-hmm. Under this social contract, individuals gave up all rights, while those of the protector are absolute. Okay. He did not, though, believe in divine right. Uh-huh. Hobbes's key point was that any protector was there by specific agreement with their subjects. So it gets into a little bit of what John Locke was saying mm-hmm. when he wrote the so, when he wrote the social contract okay. that power is derived um, by the consent of the governed. Right, and right, that very, right, right. That very much that belief very much underpinned the writings of Thomas Jefferson and James mm-hmm. Madison, the, the framers of the United, of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Locke and Hobbes have differences on their beliefs of absolute power. Mm-hmm. But you can see how the social contract, which is coming out of the early Enlightenment period of the late 1600s, early 1700s, carrying through to Adam Smith, which was late 1700s, this idea of a social contract very much underpins both the beliefs of Democrats and Republicans in Democratic in democratic ideology in general. So Adam Smith, he lived from 1723 to 1790. He was a Scottish so, social philosopher and political economist. Yes, he um, wrote what is called today as classical economic theory, right. which underpins a lot of capitalist theory. Yes, um, in terms of what political capitalism is, political mm-hmm. economy. That mm-hmm. means how it's it's the type of economy that a government employs, mm-hmm. um, how it just how it decides to accumulate and distribute wealth. Okay, so with Smith, we found that there were there's some similarity a little bit with Hobbes, but there's, I think a large, uh, an important, a significant difference. Yes. So I think there's a, there's a general agreement between the writings of Adam Smith in the wealth of nations mm-hmm. and Thomas Hobbes and the in the underpinnings of Leviathan. Mm-hmm. They both believe that humans are, are self-interested because they have a belief because of self-preservation. Right. But the different where they were Hobbes and um, and and Smith differ is with their beliefs of where to of how to regulate that regulating that self interest yeah, or yeah, how yeah. to control it or make sure it doesn't um, how it manifests in society right? right so Hobbes would say that. Um, Self-interests need to be controlled because it leads to um, really it leads to violence. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, Smith says that self-interest actually creates for social good, and so in this in his theme, the Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. which was the book he wrote in 1776, um, is that regulated commerce is ill-founded and counterproductive. Okay. Um, the prevailing view of the time in which he was writing is that gold and silver was was wealth and that country should boost exports and resist imports in order to maximize this um, this metal wealth mm-hmm. so if you're if you're viewing human nature as self-interested and you and you're someone who and you're someone who adheres to Hobbes Hobbes's view of uh, of what to do with that self-interest he would you would want to hoard that wealth domestically because you're you're inherent because of the system you're inherently um, 
suspicious of others. Right. You're, you're suspicious of the competition that other states pose to you. So for your own self-preservation, you enact lots, keep, you keep government controls to the act, the um, enactment of tariffs and other protection, economic, mm-hmm. po- domestic mm-hmm. policies to help try to consolidate wealth within yourself, within your, within your own country. Right. Um, whereas Smith would argue that it's not material that is wealth. It's actually the goods and services that that, material creates oh okay okay um miss radical insight um was that it's the stream of goods and services and then today we would call it gross national product mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A gnp right a, a, or gross domestic product mm-hmm. um that's an indicator of of wealth that that we use today when when comparing and contrasting economies mm-hmm. from country to country right uh and the way to and smith would argue that the way to maximize it was not to restrict the nation's productive capacity but to set it free. Okay. So I think that it really underpins um, a term called laissez-faire economics, which right. is you know hands off of the economy. Mm-hmm. That any sort of intrusion on the economy, any sort of regulation on the economy, actually in the long run hurts the economy, hurts the economy, and hurts hurts society as a whole. Right. Letting things take care on their own course mm-hmm. without interference. Exactly, because underpinning long run economic theory is that over time, markets will always find equal, equal, equal yes. equilibrium, which is the perfect balance between supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And then that when when economy takes a downturn, you know, um, any sort of attempts to try to boost supply side or to boost demand, mm-hmm. all that does is create for inefficiencies mm-hmm. and hurts the, econo- the, the economy's natural ability to return to that, to naturally return to that right. equilibrium. Um, so Smith... On getting back to the human nature aspect of yeah. Smith, he had a, fa- a famous quote from his book, and that is that it's not of the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we can expect our dinner, mm-hmm. but in regards to their own self-interest. So the butcher, the brewer, and the baker, they're not just making these goods because they're just... You know they're benevolent. They're they're just doing it because it it makes them feel good. They're doing the right thing. Or yeah, because they want to be nice. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. They're doing it because they're creating a product that they can sell. It's in their own interest to create these things. Correct. Yeah. And so what Adam Smith would say is that any attempts to limit the economy hurts innovation, hurts the the brewer, the baker, mm. and the butcher's ability to. Um, to act within the economy right. because you know taxation cuts into their profits mm-hmm. which cuts which hurts their ability to you know raise more pigs or grow more wheat right. and stuff like that. So it's within that little quote mm-hmm. there's a lot of you can see how that quote can be taken and formed into and formed into policy right. right and underpins the ideology of 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 different um, economic policies that right. different governments have employed. So although these two philosophers had different ideas of governance and there were some foundational similarities, they absolutely influenced different ideas or factions within the Republican Party throughout its history. Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll examine how various Republican presidents have implemented their ideas in key policy areas. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to To the Republic. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. 
They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Many thanks to New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is a premier cannabis market in the Vancouver, Portland metro area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles, CBD cream, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Boulevard. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events including wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Tap Room and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow, Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.saychow.com. That's www.say-chow.com or directly at 360-210-5525. Welcome back. You are listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. In the last segment, we began by looking at the origins of the Republican Party and the philosophical underpinnings of the Republican Party's beliefs about policy and the role of government. In these next segments, we're going to look at how Republican presidents have implemented their ideas in key policy areas. So we've identified four uh, key policy areas that we're going to look at, and those are um, trade and fiscal policy, the role of government in social programs, state versus federal power, and foreign policy and national security. And we're going to start with um, trade and fiscal policy. Yeah, so I thought we would examine where presidents, Republican presidents yeah. have had varying beliefs about uh, on both sides of, of trade and fiscal policy, mm-hmm. whether they're more protectionist or they're more free trade. And I think you've seen uh, almost, almost cyclical with in, in nature in terms mm-hmm. of there's been periods where Republican Party presidents, especially early in the in late um, early in the Republican Party's history, the late 19th century through um, up till about World War Two, you have Republican Party's presidents advocating for very protectionist policies mm-hmm. in trade. And then and then you then after World War Two, you start to have more leaning towards free trade. And then that really free trade really takes off under under Reagan mm-hmm. and it's kind of become the norm for the Republican Party to um, promote free trade policies mm-hmm. but after President Trump's election mm-hmm. there seems to be a pivot away from free trade more towards protectionism okay. of domestic um, consumers and protective and, and protectionism of domestic industry right one thing I was thinking about that I think is important to note is you know just as m- different of maybe um, methods of, of 
of handling these issues or policies that the Democrats and Republicans have. Um, there's also a split within the Republican Party. Not everybody's ideas are exactly the same. It's not just one mind. Mm-hmm. There, there are different ideas of how to go about things within the parties as well. That's an excellent point because I think the research you and I have both conducted on on this, looking at the Republican parties, there's almost really since its inception, there has been two kind of parties within the Republican Party. Right. And there's there's always been this kind of uh, tug of war and balance between conservatism mm-hmm. and more moderate. Right. Um you know, policy beliefs mm-hmm. coming from other Republican candidates. Right. And, and I think it'll be beneficial to our listeners if we kind of show and give examples of specific Republicans who have fallen on both sides of this, um, both sides of this debate. Right, right. Okay, so we have some examples of how past presidents have implemented these ideas. Um, and we're going to start with uh, trade and fiscal policies. And Jake, you have two examples of how um, maybe two presidents approached this um, maybe differently. Yeah. So I think one of the pre- Republican presidents who falls on the protectionist side of this debate in terms of trade would be Herbert Hoover, who mm-hmm. was president during the 1920s. And the belief that comes from implementing pr- protectionism, which is tariffs, that means that in order for Im- it, it, what it tries to do is try to limit imports, which cuts off competition t- to domestic suppliers. Right, right. So you're trying to protect your domestic industry by by limiting the amount of competition that they have to compete with, because competition generally drives down prices. Right. So when a if a firm in the United States has to compete with a European firm who's manufacturing the same good, mm-hmm. that comp- having consumers in the United States being able to purchase that good from Europe, yeah creates more competition keeps prices low okay so when you have you'll you'll see tariffs implemented a lot in fledging markets or in developing nations because they're trying to build up their own domestic industry and having a flood of outside of outside um uh outside products can hurt those fledging industries Mm -hmm. so Tariffs is usually the easiest way. There's also quotas limiting how much of a product can be imported. But generally, tariffs, which is a tax that um, importers in the United States have to pay in order to bring in outside goods. Right. And the idea there is to um, deter maybe importing your goods into a country because you're being taxed to do so. Correct. Right. Yeah. So it, it what it does is that it... it makes because that tax is going to be passed on to the consumer it makes the out it makes the world price or the the outside of the united states price higher right so it incentivizes consumers to buy domestic okay um the reason reason for that is because they want to enhance you know either job you know they they think it could spur job creation domestically Mm -hmm. um it'll keep businesses around domestically okay um so that that's one of that's the main ideology behind the use of tariffs right but there's a whole economic, there's a whole branch of economists who believe that in the long run that actually hurts um, the consumers, which mm-hmm. cuts consumer spending over the long run and um, actually hurts the tariffs, even though they're aimed at protecting the economy, actually hurt the economy in the mm-hmm. long run. Because what it does is by limiting the amount of competition, it keeps prices artificially high and consumers then have less disposable income. Prices are higher. That hurts consumers, um, you know, spending. Mm-hmm on other goods, Mm -hmm. which limits their choices. So you used Hoover as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, However, this is still kind of an idea that resonates today. Um, There are still individuals in in government who who still think that this might work or this will work. And I I think that it's 
it is very prevalent today. And I think you mm-hmm. see that with current policy and the belief there is that, um, with the expansion of global of globalization mm-hmm. and the economy becoming more global and more interdependent, that it's come at the cost of domestic, uh, at, it's come at the cost of d- domestic consumers, mm-hmm. and, but it's also hurt job growth domestically. And this is a way they people who adhere to this believe that this is a way to protect the economy from a rapidly growing global economy that is unstable. Okay, so what's the example from within the Republican Party that you have that's um, the counter-belief? Yeah, so the counter-belief kind of uh, it really is exemplified in Reagan's uh, economic policies. Okay. And it really was a um, repudiation of earlier tariffs, primarily the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, which President Hoover had passed in the 1920s in an, in an effort to try to stave off the Great Depression. What mm-hmm. he did was try to give, um, tried to give uh, price guarantees to wheat and cattle prices, and right, all that did was right. um, was basically flood the market mm-hmm. and cause the market to, to, to tank. Mm-hmm. And Reagan very much took this belief of hands off the economy. A very laws. He's probably the closest in a president to imp- implement truly laissez faire. Uh, beliefs in our economy, which okay. is, means very little government intervention. Right. Letting things take their own course. Exactly. And that really stems from Adam Smith's beliefs of free trade and competition. Right. So right. He, he believes that in order for the system to truly work, it, it's only when free trade and competition are allowed to uh, go off un, uninhibited. Okay. Um, when government, Yes. In, yeah. in Smith and in, in Reagan, I think would, and this is very much... Um, this is very much shown in in his speeches and his beliefs, and then his the implementation of his policies, right. especially trying to enhance global trade. Mm-hmm. He was he eliminated all tariffs. You have the expansion of different multilateral institutions, uh, especially with the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank Group. Um, these in, these international institutions that were set up to promote free trade. Um, under the belief that when governments grant subsidies or monopolies to favored producers or shelter them behind tariff walls, they can charge higher prices. Mm-hmm. The poor suffer most from this, mm-hmm. facing higher costs and necessities that they rely on. Right. Um, a further theme of the wealth of, wealth of nations, I think that kind of helps explain this, is right. the competition and free exchange are under threat from monopolies, tax preferences, controls, and other privileges that producers exact from the government authorities. So it's very much a... Um, even though the government might be thinking that they're helping, right? That in the long run, mm-hmm. over the over the the length of a of a of a country's over over a country's life, having government intervention to to try to fix short run problems, right, right, hurts it over the long over the long period, right. So those are two, you know, differing opinions or different examples of how you know Republican presidents in the past have have kind of approached trade or fiscal policy mm-hmm. um, or and, and in this case taxation um, what do you have for the role of government in social programs so within the Republican Party at different times there's been very there has been Republicans who've been very progressive about expanding social programs mm-hmm. and then also there's been very conservative voices within the Republican Party who worry about social programs, um, fiscal cost, how much it costs to implement these, and in in relative to their effectiveness, um, saying that you know, the the burden on taxpayers in increasing taxes to pay for these programs in actually inhibits you know economic growth and actually hurts the economy at the grand scale. Um, so they they worry about. The implementation of these social programs, and I think there has been a very, um, there has been heated debates, and there's been definitely a, a, a lot of 
change within the Republican Party and how they view the, these, these social programs. And real quick, when we say social programs, we're referring to federal and state welfare programs that include cash assistance, health care and medical provisions, food assistance, housing subsidies, energy and utility subsidies, education and child care assistance and subsidies and assistance for other basic services. Okay. Yeah, that's um, pretty encompassing. And I think you'll see throughout time, there has been emphasis on different aspects of social, different parts of social policies versus, and then others have been, you know, kind of phased out or are not as emphasized. And I think it just comes down to, you know, beliefs about the policy in general, about Mm -hmm. where the government should focus their money, um, should focus their time and efforts, because really it is an economic, it really is an economic decision. It is. Um, and there's been Republicans who have fallen on both sides of this debate. There's been very, there's been com- progressives and there has been conservatives right. within the Republican Party. Um, early on, uh, one of the one of the most famous Republicans, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, saw an expansion of of pro labor policies. He opposed monopolistic and exploitative practices by businesses and really did a lot to um, preserve national parks. And right. other and other national monuments mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So you have um, a Republican early on, even before Keynesian economic theory takes hold in the United States, prior to the um, to the to the New Deal under during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. where you have a Republican who is very much on the side of a social change and was very progressive. Um, you really can even argue that the Republicans at the time of the Civil War were the Progressive Party, mm. and in valuing. Uh, federal power over state power in the implementation of those social programs. Okay. I think that's, once you get into the Reagan era, you start to see the um, federal Republicans arguing that the implementation of those social programs really should be left up to the states mm-hmm. to fund because they can better fund their populations because they know their populations better right. versus the federal government just having a blank check to fund a, bro- a wide mm-hmm. variety of people and cultures and needs mm-hmm. across a vast country. Okay. So that's kind of that's kind of where the the split has 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 come at times between mm-hmm. the Republican Party that I've noticed. Um, also, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower during the 1950s um, saw an expansion of Social Security, increased the minimum wage. Uh, created the Department of uh, Health, Education, and Welfare, mm-hmm. and also implemented higher taxes. Oh, okay. so some of the highest capital gains taxes this country's actually ever seen right. was during Eisenhower's presidency. Mm-hmm. So there has been a, a tremendous evolution on of of Republican Party ideology on on the funding and implementation of social programs, and it, so it hasn't really been. Republicans, you know, don't like to fund these or right. it's, it's not any, it has never been like a monolithic or a, uh, exactly. or, or homogenized belief right. on this. It, there, it is very much a, a division within the party. Right. So I think to kind of understand where this ideology comes from with social programs, I think we need to define something that I mentioned kind of almost in passing mm-hmm. a little earlier, which was Keynesian economic theory. Right. So Keynesian economics are a group of various macroeconomic theories about how in the short run, and especially during recessions, economic output is strongly influenced by consumer spending. So in kind of contrast to Adam Smith's long run economic theory, Mm -hmm. which is markets will always uh, reach equilibrium, that any sort of intervention by the government causes... 
causes inefficiencies, which hurts the economy in the long run. Keynes would argue that actually, in the long run, we're all dead. So waiting for the markets to um, find equilibrium Mm -hmm. is leaving a lot of people suffering in the meantime. Right. So his so what Keynes would say, and this was he. He theorized, he came up with this theory during the great global Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that th- by creating policies that spur consumer spending mm-hmm. helps the economy grow faster. So helping the bottom line, helping people at the bottom who maybe don't have the means to spend. Correct. Mm-hmm. And because that's what drives the economy, right? People have right. to buy products in order for stuff to be sold. Right. In order for stuff to be produced, mm-hmm. things need to be being bought. Right. So he's very much saying that we need to look, take care of the consumer demand mm-hmm. side versus the supply side. Okay. Um, <clears throat> which is which is very much rooted in Adam Smith's ideology of long run economics, mm-hmm. which is supply side economics. Right. We're kind of getting in the weeds with that. But what I wanted to make the, the point is, is I think there's a great metaphor that kind of um, really underpins Keynesian economic theory. And that is, if you were a candle maker when Edison, invol- Edison invented the light bulb, mm-hmm. you're out of a job. Right. And is that your own fault? Is that in, is that the fault of yourself or your inability to to work? Mm-hmm. And it's it's and it's really not. Right. That's the question that Keynes was trying to answer. Mm-hmm. Is that there needs to, in his belief, that there needs to be some sort of safety net that allows people when they when the natural evolution of an economy creates for job loss, there needs to be something there to keep those people and allow them to re-enter the bus- re-enter the business cycle, mm-hmm. re-enter the economy in due time instead of completely falling out of the economy, which, which you know, then all of a sudden there is no economic benefit right. to those people anymore. So the development of a welfare state. Correct. <laughs> which is a system whereby the government undertakes to protect the health and well-being of its citizens, especially those in financial or social need by means of grants, pensions, and other benefits. So sparking that ability to participate in the market. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that since World War II, most Republicans would agree that there needs to be some sort of government intervention in the mm-hmm. economy. And it's, it's, it's been that way throughout. Almost every Republican president has you know, at least funded to some level mm-hmm. these social programs. But the division comes how many of these social programs to, what, to how much should we fund them. Right. And I think that's where the, de- that's where the debate really mm-hmm. lies. On one side, those who want more government, regardless of the cost. On the other, those who want less government, regardless of the need. We should leave those arguments to the last century and chart a different course. Government has a role and an important role. Yet too much government crowds out initiative and hard work, private charity, and the private economy. Our new governing vision says government should be active but limited, engaged but not overbearing. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we return, we're going to take a look at how past Republican presidents approached um, the issues of state versus federal authority and foreign policy and national security. You are listening to To the Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. We'll be right back.
community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Hey, it's Jeff from To The Republic. Many thanks to New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver, Portland area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles, CBD creams, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the New Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Boulevard. Open from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. I'd also like to give thanks to Just In Time Electrical for supporting our radio community. The professional electricians of Just In Time Electrical have the skills, training, and experience to complete your electrical project. Just In Time Electrical offers residential and commercial services, which include installations, upgrades, repairs, rewiring, and maintenance. More information available at myjustintimejob.com. That's myjustintimejob.com or at 360-836-5806. Welcome back. You are listening to To The Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. In our last segment, we looked at how Republicans over time have implemented trade and fiscal policies as well as social programs. In this last segment, we want to look at how different Republican presidents approach state versus federal authority and how they approach foreign policy and national security. But before we continue with that, we wanted to take a look at the two at two ways Republicans or people throughout our government have interpreted the Constitution. Okay. So there are two terms that are used um when defining how particular parties or politicians or a judge goes about interpreting the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And those two terms are strict and loose constructionism. So under strict constructionism, you have a very literal interpretation, a very pragmatic interpretation of the wording of the Constitution. Okay. If it's not explicitly said in the Constitution, then it's a power that's not given to the federal government. And under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, Mm -hmm. anything that's not delegated in the Constitution to the federal government needs to be left up to the states or to the individual. So conservatives have very much used or touted the Ninth and Tenth Amendment as a very strict way of defining federal power. So anything that isn't explicitly given as a power to the federal government that is stated in the Constitution should be left up to the states to implement and determine how to introduce or execute any sort of policy. And we kind of talked about this in the last segment with social policies. Uh, There are a lot of conservative politicians who believe that these social programs are necessary, but that they should be left up to the individual states uh, instead of the federal government funding them. Okay. But... In contrast, there are also Republicans who have taken a very loose constructionism look at the Constitution. And loose constructionism, meaning that the Constitution is viewed as a living, breathing document Mm -hmm. that should be interpreted within the times because culture is constantly changing and the needs of the nation and citizens are also 
you know, changing over time. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be more of a more leeway or a loose interpretation of the Constitution um, to act within that system. And historically, you can see where there have been strict and loose constructionist interpretations of the Constitution, even at the same time under a president. I don't think it's ever really been, you know, black and white. There have been times where a president has been very strict in some areas, but also very loose in others. Um, And I think that just depends on where the president's particular priorities are and how they see the world or their worldview um, and the and the role of government. So. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just two ways in which the Constitution is interpreted. Okay. Okay, now we're going to switch gears and and get back to looking at how um, Republicans have have approached different issues. Um, And we're going to get into this issue of state versus federal um, authority or power. So one key example of the interpretation of authority comes during the American Civil War era, specifically in the areas of slavery and state secession. Yes, very much so. Prior to the Civil War... You know, the Constitution was silent on the areas of of both those issues, slavery and secession. Um, And a strict constructionist view of these topics would have left the issue of slavery up to the states to decide. Okay. And since the Constitution didn't explicitly determine that a state cannot resign from the Union, that would have left states like South Carolina to secede. Sure, okay. Um, So President Lincoln interpreted the Constitution with his executive powers to allow for the federal government to supersede the state's rights Ah. on both of those issues. Um, And ultimately, you know, as we know, with the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, the issue of slavery was put to rest. Mm -hmm. Additionally, though, it can be argued that Lincoln's actions set the precedence for expanded federal power over states in the post-Civil War era. Okay, that's really interesting. Another example that I was thinking about mm-hmm. in terms of when Republicans have fallen down, have fallen on the states' rights issue, rights states' rights side of this issue, okay. and that would be with education. Um, okay, yeah. There's outside of you know some federal guidelines, most of curriculum, state sta- uh, standards mm-hmm. are all going to be left up to the states to decide, right. and um, also on the issue of like immigration, so. The like the federal government has immigration laws, right. but states have you know like Arizona have had issues with the federal government on implementation of those laws, um, wanting to in wanting to impose their own types of immigration policies, and then you know coming at odds with the with the federal government, and then also on the issues of you know marijuana legalization too as well. I think th- those are three areas where I think you see areas you know stuff that's been left up to the states versus federal government and i think it's interesting to see where the party will fall on each one of those issues like they might they might um, prefer federal power in one issue and then um, being left and saying well that should be left up to the states in another issue so it's interesting to see um, how the party has kind of navigated those waters in the post-civil war era okay so moving on to our our last our last part looking at foreign policy and um national security and how Republicans approach that. You have some examples, right? Yeah. So I think um, foreign policy throughout the, like every other issue that we've explored, Mm -hmm. uh, Republicans have, the Republican party has, has had 
a very shifting nature to right. how they implement foreign policy and national security. Different ebbs and, and flows and different cycles exactly. that we're seeing through time. And, and I think a lot of this has to do with just the environmental realities of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. Necess- necess- necessitating different um, policies. Right. Policies that were out, you know, that were maybe outside of um, traditional Republican norms, but mm-hmm. be- but because of the times necessitated, um, you know, maybe a shift in ideology. And I think that's not, I think that's exemplified the most in President Bush's administration okay president bush didn't come into office um on a on a hawkish platform mm-hmm. he didn't um he didn't he wasn't advocating for uh, for intervention he, mm-hmm. he was actually very much um arguing for you know more um contained in an isolated foreign policy right not not removing the united states from its obligations um at the international stage but mm-hmm. not he wasn't advocating for what ultimately his administration would become. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that had to do with the realities in the post nine 11 era. Right. And, um, in, in adopting a very primacy, uh, doctrine. And what that means is that primacy is that a, a threat to peace anywhere is a threat to peace everywhere. Right. And I think you, you, this very expanded role of, of American power and mm-hmm. expansion of expansion of power on the world stage, um, is very outside and very different than what the Republican Party platform was um, at its inception, and mm-hmm. then also through uh, the pre World War II era. You have very it's very it very much is an ebb, ebb and ebb and flow. Uh, for example, one of the more isol- uh, when Republicans have been more isolated was mm-hmm. at the end of World War One, with the Democratic president Woodrow Wilson going to Versailles and, and signing the Versailles Treaty. Um, with England and France and uh, and the the other other allied powers. And the Republican-held legislature, the Senate, refused to confirm the Versailles Treaty because they felt like it was was outside the the powers of the president to have signed this treaty, and Mm -hmm. they felt like it it was... The United United States shouldn't get involved into international entanglements. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely see at different times there has been very different interpretations of America's role abroad, and I I think that it it's it's definitely a very interesting area of of analysis. Right, you know, as society evolves and as society changes, so will approaches to policy, Um, but also with this development of globalism, Mm -hmm. that also changes and shifts the way that the United States as a nation approaches um, different issues or um, different ideas. Yeah. In, in, in the post-World War II era, you have most presidents, whether they're Democrat or uh, Republican, I yes. think this has been, I think, foreign policy, or at least not in the min- like the minute areas of mm-hmm. foreign policy, but like on the, the grand right. strategy of foreign policy, um, working through international intu- in, in institutions, mm-hmm. uh, cultivating uh, alliances with, with close allies, um, especially uh, allies that you know, are, de- are democratic and mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. Um, and promote democracy and free trade. And I, I think that both, both parties have, in the post-World War II era have kind of enveloped that, that belief. And I think you haven't really seen a huge change in fundamental policy ideology since, you know, Harry, you know, in the, you know, from Harry Truman to, to about to now. Mm -hmm. And by today, I really should say 2016, because I really think 2016, the election of president Trump really Mm -hmm. has changed um, traditional Republican or at least Republicans in the post-World War II era view of America's role. Uh, internationally, internationally yeah. and um, it's, I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but I think there has been a market shift, right? And I think it's very much in line with a Hobbesian view of, of human nature, mm-hmm. and that um, 
humans and by extension nation states are inherently self-interested right and therefore we have to look out for our own Mm -hmm. before we consider anything else because we can only everybody else is self-interested looking out for their own survival Mm -hmm. we have to look out for our own survival first Mm -hmm. it's very much so in the american first america first you know policy that the president has um you know has been trying to implement Mm -hmm. and it's very at odds with many of the free marketeers, with many of the people who believe in multilateralism and globalization within the mm-hmm. Republican Party, which has been a, a, a policy held belief, you know, during Reagan, um, during H.W. Uh, Bush, during Bush, that there seems to be a transformation within the Republican Party on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And getting back to that schism between moderates and um and conservatives, yeah. I think this is a, a period in the Republican Party where more conservative leaning um ideological thinkers have um have become become to have come to prominence within the party mm-hmm. and um versus more moderates who would fall in line with more of the the philosophy of adam smith right. and so it is it is in, it is really interesting um to see where we're going to go from here where right. the party is going to go from here um but it but no means i think the party is going to be destroyed by this right, because right, we've right. seen throughout our analyzation of mm-hmm. the party that there's been ebbs and flows and there's right. been challenges and there the, the party is not a monolith there right. are people who have all sorts of different beliefs about the role of government and the role of of america abroad um you know who have power within right. the party not even not even simply just ebbs and flows but evolutions mm-hmm. you see the evolution of the party and the way that um different different presidents and different politicians have approached different issues. Yeah, and, and it is interesting because we, when we talked about how at different times a, a party, you know, a president can have a Hobbesian view or a strict versus loose constructivism view of a particular topic. And, and, it, differ, and it differs depending upon the issue. And I, I think that's very much in line with kind of seeming seemingly some hypocrisy mm-hmm. a little bit where um they talk about you know tyranny in the economy with right. a lot of uh, government intervention in the economy mm-hmm. leading to tyranny but then in the areas of foreign policy where you see a, a lot of fear and anxiety mm-hmm. about globalization about um you know islamic terrorism right you see you see the party advocating for more authoritarian leaning policies, more bringing more government, the Hobbesian yes. kind of view of human okay. nature, uh, a lot wanting more of that Leviathan. Mm-hmm. So it, it is interesting how the, the party reconciles with seemingly, con- you know, with seeming contradictions, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that's any different than the party has ever. Um, and I think that's more of a, that's more emblematic of the differences within the party versus, right. you know, uh, you know, just, outward explicit hypocrisy right there's there's certain gives and takes with with the variations of issues mm-hmm. it, people could choose or 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 accept different things um which can see seem hypocritical like you're saying but i think that generally there are there are some issues that are going to um promote or provoke kind of um leniences by either citizens or politicians Sure, and and I think it, it needs to be analyzed. Right. Yes, and, absolutely. And I think that's what we're attempting to do. Right. We're not making a normative statement about any of this. Right. It's just we're pointing it out in an analytical way. Right. History records the power of the ideas that brought us here those seven years ago. Ideas like the individual's right to reach as far and as high as his, his or her talents will permit. The free market as an engine of economic progress and as an ancient Chinese philosopher 
Lao Tzu said, govern a great nation as you would cook a small fish. Do not overdo it. Well, these ideas were part of a larger notion, a vision, if you will, of America herself, an America not only rich in opportunity for the individual, but an America, too, of strong families and vibrant neighborhoods, an America whose divergent but harmonizing communities were a reflection of a deeper community of values. And well, Jeff, I think that brings us just about around to full circle. Yeah, that was good. All right, Jake. Well, this has been fun. It's always fun. It is always fun. Uh, if you guys have enjoyed this show, be sure to check out our weekly podcast called Say What You Mean. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And we'd like to thank you guys for listening to our show. You can find the past episodes of this show on www.kxrwvancouver.org or on our podcast feed. And remember to vote and stay informed. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Hey, this is Jake, co-host of To The Republic on KXRW. I just wanted to say thanks to Just-In-Time Electrical for supporting our radio community. The professional electricians of Just-In-Time Electrical have the skills, training, and experience to complete your electrical project. Just-In-Time Electrical offers residential and commercial services, which include installations, upgrades, repairs, rewiring, and maintenance. More information available at myjustintimejob.com. That's myjustintimejob.com. Dot com or at 360-836-5806. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Put on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com.